Urgent Care, I'm very excited to welcome Dr. Brad Spellberg, uh, Chief Medical Officer of USC and LA County, and uh, an extraordinarily accomplished man in the field of medicine. Uh, Dr. Spellberg, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. So were you one of those kids that when they were little, they always wanted to be a doctor? I sort of had my fascination kicked off when I took AP biology in high school. And I vividly remember the immunology section of the biology textbooks talking about the immune system. And there was this photo, an electron micrograph of a white blood cell reaching an arm out to grab a bacteria. And I was like hooked from that moment forward. Wow. So you studied biology when you were in college? Yeah, I was actually at uh, UC Berkeley. I was an immunology major, molecular cell biology, emphasis in immunology, just fascinated by the immune system. Mm -hmm. And what made you decide to go into medicine and not exclusively research? Well, that's a great question. Um, it's probably multifactorial. I think um, I kind of have a touch of ADD maybe a little bit. I like to have multiple things going on at one time. I also think that um, the two aspects, clinical practice and scientific research, um, sort of inform the other. I get to learn what's important to study in the lab, and I can apply scientific principles in the lab to patient care. So I, I just didn't want to pigeonhole myself in one direction and and have been able to make both work. That's exciting. So how did you end up at uh, at USC and at King Drew? So, uh, so I was never at King Drew. Oh, so no. I, I spent, you know, I spent 15 years at Harbor UCLA Medical Center, oh. which is our sister county hospital. And then in 2014, I moved over to LA County USC Medical Center, which is not USC Medical Center. Mm -hmm. It's the county hospital. It has mm -hmm. a contract with USC to fund physician, to purchase physician services, but it is the linchpin of the safety net in LA County. It's one of the largest public hospitals in the United States, third busiest emergency department in the U.S., and one of the busiest trauma centers in the United States. And what does it mean to be the chief medical officer? So hospitals are run by chief officers. There's a CEO at the top, and then there's chief medical, chief nursing, chief operations, chief financial. My job, I have uh, um, multiple cost centers at the hospital reporting up through me, things like the medical staff, the physicians, that's both the faculty, the attending physicians, and also the resident physicians, the trainees, the pharmacy reports up to me, risk management. So many aspects of the hospital report to me and my job is to um, assure and improve the quality, safety, and efficiency of care at the hospital. So we're in this COVID crisis now. How does that affect the delivery of services in the county? Well, it affects every aspect of it um, in ways that are in some ways even surprising. So you know, when things were getting really bad, I mean, L.A. County, USC, um, as I mentioned, one of the biggest public hospitals in the United States, certainly the biggest in, in the Western U.S. We've had more COVID positive patients than any other hospital in California. Wow. And when we were at peak and we were really running into, you know, we were very near the point of not being able to deliver more care. Uh, this was now about a month ago. Um, you know, you just couldn't do a lot of things for non-COVID patients that you wanted to do. We, mm -hmm. we don't, we've had to cancel elective surgeries. Um, almost all of our clinic visits were remote. We just couldn't have people come into campus. So, you know, it just completely reorganizes the aspect of care. You need to pull people from outpatient into the inpatient side because you're short staffed. It just, the entire orientation of care revolves around the, the pandemic. Now things are easing fortunately in the LA County area now and we're way off our peak and things are starting to move back towards normalcy. And we have to hope that cases continue to wane. But when that happens, what, I mean, people still get sick. People still have heart attacks. They still have strokes. 
people still get in car accidents. I mean, what happens to those people if you can't, if you're focused so much on, on care for people that have COVID? Yeah. So, I mean, that's, that's a really great point. And I think there's two critical points to make uh, in reply. First is we were never closed in the ER. Our ER has remained open throughout. Um, if people had emergencies, we've always been open. We remain open and we want you to come see us if you're having an emergency. Mm-hmm. We do have the ability to care for you if you have an emergency. Interestingly, <clears throat> I think one of the things that we've learned is that People do bad things to themselves. So as the economy closed down, the number of traumas dramatically fell. Car accidents fell. People falling off ladders fell. You know, people weren't going to bars and getting drunk. And so, uh, you know, people were, interestingly, we had way a marked reduction of diabetes out of control. I think, you know, as people were cooking for themselves at home, they were probably eating a little bit healthier so one of the interesting things is that I think society sort of adapted as as the economy closed. Um, now, things are starting to, to resort back towards a normal trajectory. But hopefully, you know, we've certainly learned a lot in medicine. We, we were making people come to campus for their clinic visits when actually remote visits work just as well for many types of visits. And maybe we don't need to have people take three buses to get to campus or fight part to find parking on campus and then wait to check in and all that stuff. So I think if there is a positive to come out of all this is that we're learning maybe the way we were doing things before wasn't optimal in many ways and we can become much more efficient. But how does that impact you find the hospital financially? I mean, if, if you're not seeing patients, um, if you're canceling elective surgery, how does the hospital survive that? I mean, that's part of the money that makes the hospital run. Yeah, so I mean, I we're th- that there is truth in what you say. I mean, honestly, the truth is what uh, you know what you're describing is a much bigger problem for non-public hospitals. We don't make money from that. You know, we're not here to make. You know, this is not a profit center. This is a public hospital. We're a mm-hmm. government facility. I'm a county employee. So we don't make money by taking care of patients. Mm-hmm. Um, now, but in hospitals whose operating budgets are floated by surgeries, which is most hospitals, whether they're private nonprofit or private for-profit, yeah, they're in serious trouble. Uh, now, we, we certainly did have financial problems because tax revenue fell. And remember, we're a government entity. So our problem really related more to the economy than, well, you're not having elective surgeries and you normally, we don't normally make money off elective surgeries. We do surgeries for people who need them. And that really does get to some of the core principles that was discussed in the book that I recently published, that the U.S. healthcare system is floated on a system of fee for service. And it's incentivized hospitals and doctors to do more things to people because that's how you get paid. And that's not really an optimal way to design a healthcare system. So I think what you're pointing out is that COVID-19 has kind of stripped the veneer away from the rot within the center of the U.S. healthcare system and exposed it for the world to see. Well, but so you see public hospitals being impacted by a reduction in health in uh, taxes, private hospitals being impacted uh, because they can't have elective surgeries all of them sort of moving towards the precipice of bankruptcy. What what do you see happening? Well, I don't think that we're any different. uh, That is we. I don't think the healthcare system is any different than the restaurant industry or any of a variety of economic sectors that have been decimated by the the virus and the impact of the virus. There's a reason why the federal government is pumping money into the economy. Um, you know, the virus can kill you, you know, by infecting you and the virus can killing you by causing you to lose your job. If you have no income and you can't buy food or you can't pay your rent, that can kill you too. And so I think the world is in, you know, serious trouble, not just for health reasons, but for economic reasons, which then lead to health reasons. I think of anything, the U S healthcare system, um, exacerbates the problem by being enormously expensive. And we, we 
massively overpay for health care in this country. We pay two to two and a half times more than any other country in the world, whether you assess per person or per GDP for health care. And in return, we live shorter lives. The, the American people are getting ripped off by the existing health care system, horribly ripped off. And so I, I think to the extent well, that we need it... to be floated like the restaurant industry by government bailouts, it is incumbent on the American people to insist that the healthcare system be reformed in parallel because we just can't keep doing business as usual. But is it the healthcare, is it the insurance company piece of it that's rip, where the ripoff is taking place? Is it the hospital system itself? Is it the administrative burdens that are being imposed on hospitals? Where is all the, where's the ripoff coming from? So that's a great question and actually is one of the core. This is this is why I decided to write the book, Broken, Bankrupt and Dying, because questions like you ask are so confusing. I think that my conclusion after analyzing everything and, and there's just loads of analysis in the book is that the system itself is the ripoff. Each piece of the system is doing exactly what it's supposed to do. Hospitals are doing what they're supposed to do. Doctors are doing what they're supposed to do. Honestly, insurance companies are doing what they're supposed to do. What is an insurance company supposed to do? It's supposed to make money for its shareholders. That is what companies do in a capitalistic society. The way we have accidentally evolved our healthcare system, this is a really important point. No one ever designed our healthcare system. It was never rationally designed. It is an accident of laws passed during World War II to prevent post-war inflation, having nothing to do with healthcare. The way our system has organically and accidentally evolved, all of the pieces of it are malaligned for the interest of people to live healthy lives. And the result of which is we have this chaotic fee-for-service environment where Hospitals are incentivized to do more things to people. We're not incentivized to keep you healthy. We make money. We, the broader we, the healthcare hospitals throughout the system, make money by having sick people in our beds and surgeries get done on them. The flip side is insurance companies are incentivized to not pay for healthcare. That's how they make money. They lose money. Your premiums are outrageously expensive, but those premiums don't cover costs of sick people. So many, many healthy people have to pay premiums to cover the cost of one sick person. So what is the insurance company's incentive? It's to push sick people off their insurance rolls. And where do they end up? On the taxpayers' backs. Our system is not intelligently designed. And all the pieces are individually doing what's best for them in the system. And there is no master organization of the system. International models, where there is a universal healthcare system, whether it is single payer or private multi-payer, are, have a much better alignment of the patient, that is the customer, the provider, that's the doctor in the hospital, and the payer, so that they're all aligned in the same purpose and interest. And that simply doesn't exist in the United States. So what are the incentives of those systems that create the alignment? So... The single-payer systems are the easiest to understand because there you've got one government payer. Now, people get confused. That doesn't mean government's delivering the health care. That means government's paying for health care. Think Medicare in our country. Mm -hmm. There are no Medicare hospitals and there's no Medicare doctors. Medicare pays hospitals and doctors to deliver health care. In the single-payer countries, the incentive is to find ways to collect taxes from people in the lowest expensive way possible. We're going to deliver health care to keep the population healthy, because if we keep you healthy, it's much less expensive. I'm not going to pay the hospital for each surgery they do, so they are incentivized to do more surgeries. And I have no incentive to kick you off my insurance roll because there is no one else. I fund everybody's insurance. So everybody's aligned in purpose. We're going to create payment mechanisms that pay the providers to keep you healthy. And that's going to keep all of our costs down. In a private multi-payer system, things become slightly more complex. And the reason is there isn't one payer. There's multiple payers. So how do you make it so that they're all aligned? The closest that countries have been able to do 
is what's called an individual mandate. Mm-hmm. Everybody has to purchase a plan because the cheapest healthcare plan is not to purchase a plan and hope you get lucky and don't get sick. But that falls apart at the population level because people will get sick. And then who's going to pay for them? The taxpayers. The United States has not been willing to tolerate an individual mandate. The individual mandate in the Affordable Care Act was challenged in court repeatedly and then killed by Congress. So find a mechanism in the United States that's culturally compatible where Americans want choices because they distrust government, but they don't accept mandates. So how do you do that? You have to balance these very intricate cultural components that are deeply ingrained in American culture. You know, you can go back to don't tread on me mm-hmm. and united we stand. And those are like in contradiction to each other. And how we resolve those conflicts will allow us to set up a system in which payment provider and customer are all aligned in purpose. But for let's look at the individual level though. I mean, when you talk about mandates to keep people healthy, I mean, Americans aren't very good at, you know, giving up their Cheetos or, you know, maintaining healthy lifestyles across the country. I mean, people are are uh, you know, we we're We've gained more and more weight as a country. We exercise less. Um, so how can you mandate? What What do you mean by mandate a healthy lifestyle or improved health? No, no. Man, not mandating healthy lifestyle. Mandating participating in health care. So, Pay into the system. So, the so system if everybody pays. Apart, uh-huh. That's correct. That's correct. The system falls apart. When people who are healthy say it's too expensive to to buy a health plan, I'm going to take my chances. That removes the payments from the healthy people and leaves just the sicker people paying for health care, and it's too expensive. You can't afford it. You need many, many, many healthy people to pay into the system to pay for each individual sick person's care. That's what insurance is supposed to do. But in our system, the individual insurance companies are incentivized to make it difficult for people who are sick to keep their health care. They lose money on those people. So they tend to nudge those people off the rolls. Where do those people end up? On the backs of the taxpayers. If you're going to make a multi-payer system work, you must have an individual mandate where everybody must pay into the system, whether they want to or not, because you cannot sustainably pay for health care for sick people if the healthy people aren't paying their share. And Here's the analogy I would use. Okay. We're on the freeway. We're driving on the freeway. We're paying our taxes for the freeway. Freeway is really crowded. A lot of people on it. There's a toll lane next to us or a fast track lane, depending on what part of the country you live in. What if I choose to pay extra to go into the toll lane or the fast track lane? I'm still paying my taxes for the public lane. We have a system in the country now where people can go into the toll lane and not pay the taxes for the public lanes. We need to evolve to a system, and there are countries in the world that do this successfully. You don't have to choose between single-payer and private multi-payer. You can actually make both work, and that may resolve this tension between don't tread on me and united we stand. Everybody pays into the central system to cover everybody. But if you want to pay extra, you can pay extra to go under the toll lane. So it's like the Canadian system. No, it's not like the Canadian system. The Canadian system is pure single payer. There's private insurance in Canada that people can get on top of the public system. It's supplemental. Correct. Yes. The, the, and so that's a subtle nuance. And every single payer country in the world does have the ability to purchase supplemental insurance, even in the U.K., Mm-hmm. where it isn't just single-payer insurance, but the government owns and operates the hospitals and pays the doctors, they still have supplemental private insurance. Mm-hmm. But if you look at the New Zealand and Australian model, it mm-hmm. isn't just supplemental insurance. You can actually buy a competing insurance plan in the private marketplace. You can say, I don't want to use my public insurance. Yeah, I've paid my taxes into it, great, but I'm going to buy my own health plan. I don't have to use the single-payer for my basic health care. 
I'm going to buy a competing private plant by paying on top. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> we don't have to be hyperpartisan. We don't have to say to the Democrats, you can't have a single payer, and to the Republicans, you can't have your private multi-payer. There are models that are – the Australian model and the New Zealand model are amongst the most cost-effective and effective healthcare systems in the world. Mm-hmm. We can find ways that balance these competing cultural interests in the U.S. because if we don't, nothing will get done. So how we does spend, go ahead? Well, how does the Medicaid model, where we have this safety net system, and then the ability to get private insurance separately from that conflict with what you're talking about. Lots of people are not eligible for Medicaid, Medicare, and don't voluntarily because they can't afford it or it's not supplied by their insur- their employer purchase private insurance. So we have more uninsured people than most countries in the world. Mm-hmm. And all of those plans have no central like this is how we're going to negotiate for prices. This, you, do you know how many, you know how many people a hospital has to employ just to figure out an individual's health insurance plan? And are they allowed to, to care for that person or is that person out of network? In the United States, 25% of hospital budgets go for pure admin costs. It is outrageous. In single payer systems, they use global budgeting for hospitals. That number is closer to 10%. Wow. So the ability to reduce that alone will make healthcare cheaper. Moving to single payer by itself, you would save at least $500 billion per year in healthcare costs per year. It may be up to a trillion dollars per year. I mean, we're in an era of record debt and record deficits, and the government desperately needs to find ways to cut costs. And our healthcare system is so outrageously expensive in the United States. If you took the total amount of money we spend on just healthcare, mm-hmm. if that was its own country, it would be the fifth largest economy in the world. We spend more on healthcare in the United States than the entire gross domestic product of the UK. It's ridiculous. And so much of it is waste. At least a third is pure waste. And when you say that, what do you mean, what is it wasted on? Lots of categories of waste. These have been delineated by the Institute of Medicine and by experts like Don Berwick. Things like administrative costs, you know, unnecessary administrative costs. Things like over-treatment. We talked about, do you really need that surgery or is that being done because that's how hospitals and doctors make money? Mm-hmm. Um, I, I tell the story in the book about a uh, businesswoman who was on a trip to uh, California for a business meeting, and she developed an infection on her face while she was out of state. She was in California. And so she went to the ER. She had a staph abscess on her face. She got admitted to the hospital for three days. She had four different consultants see her. Um, She had a plastic surgeon do the incision and drainage of the abscess. Uh, Her total hospital bill for those three days was $50,000. Wow. Of which her very good private insurance covered $45,000, leaving her on the hook for $5,000 out of pocket. A few wow. years before that, I had had a very similar abscess on my face. I woke up in the morning with a big staph abscess on my face. I went to my lab. I drained the thing myself, and I called in a prescription for $45 of oral antibiotics. Never went into the hospital. This is over-treatment. It's excessive overtreatment. There's all kinds of other ways that have been described beyond that. And, and, and it's estimated that about a third of our healthcare costs are due to things like admin waste, overpricing. We pay way more for pharmaceuticals in this country than any other country in the world. We do overtesting. We do more MRIs and CT scans, elective surgeries, overtreatment, things like that, lack of standardization of care medical errors, all that stuff adds up to a huge excess cost. Hmm. What about the emphasis on diagnosis? Do you feel like, do you feel that that also plays into um, 
into the increase in healthcare costs where they might test for one thing at a time as opposed to an array of problems? Well, I think that gets to this concept of lack of standardization of care and and uh, and overtreatment. Uh, you know, one of the core principles of evidence-based medicine is that you should only send a test when you know how the result of the test is going to affect your treatment before you send the test. You shouldn't go fishing for things because you tend to find things you don't know what to do with. And so I think that does play into you know, if you're in a healthcare system where the goal of the system is to keep you out of the hospital, you approach things very differently than if the goal of the system is to, you know, have you get hospitalized. You know, there's a story in the book about um, Maryland. In Maryland, Medicare has done a demonstration project where they've had all of the hospitals, the acute care hospitals, switch to a global budgeting model. They get a fixed amount of money each year. They negotiate that amount year by year, but they don't get more money by doing things. This is your budget for the year. It's like a fire station or a police station. This is how much money you have for the year. Manage within your budget. And they interviewed the CEO of one of these hospitals who said, before global budgeting, I would get very nervous when I had to open beds because that meant I was losing money. My operating budget depends on having sick people in my beds. Where are all the sick people? I need more sick people. After global budgeting, he's like, boy, how can we get all these sick people out of our beds and keep them healthy so they don't end up sick in the first place? Because mm -hmm. when they end up in his bed, he doesn't get any extra money, but he pays extra money out of pocket. It completely flips the orientation around. My goal is to keep the population healthy, keep you all healthy, not have you in my hospital bed sick. I would send that, that businesswoman home on the oral antibiotic rather than putting her in the hospital for three days and racking up a $50,000 bill. Mm -hmm. And to your earlier point, how do you encourage people to live healthy? I'm not saying this should be done, but I'm saying it can be done. If you have a system where everybody's paying into a health plan, one has the ability to adjust the payment based on healthy lifestyle choices. You know, if you smoke, you pay an extra amount because you're asking society to take on extra risk on your behalf. We're all sharing that risk. We're in a shared risk pool. We're all paying into the same pool. We're all expecting each other to cover each other's costs. If you choose to do something that's unhealthy, then you, you can build in a cost, uh, an extra cost to account for that. In the current system, you really can't do that. Because what do you do with people who have no insurance? They're not paying into the system at all. Mm -hmm. But didn't they used to have that, and then and then people felt it was discriminatory? You know, when they used to have. If mm -hmm. you've got a non-standardized payer system, you can sort of make those kinds of claims. This is like um, before seatbelt laws. Right. Mm -hmm. So now you're saying, look, you don't want to wear a seatbelt. Why am I paying for the cost of the trauma care for you after you got into a car accident? Right. If everybody has agreed, if we've all agreed that we're all going to pay into the system together, we're all covering each other's backs, which is what insurance is supposed to do. That's the whole concept of insurance. Mm -hmm. We're going to create a shared risk pool. We're all going to pay into it. We all have each other's backs. If you're asking me to cover the cost of your future lung cancer care because you're choosing to smoke, you have to be able to expect that you're going to pay a little extra. Now, again, I'm not saying that should be done. I'm saying that can be done. Mm -hmm. In the current model, that person's health care costs are going to get paid by the taxpayer, and they're not going to have paid extra into the system. Many of them aren't going to have paid into the system at all because they don't have health insurance. Right, right, That's right. a really important point for your listeners to understand. If they think they're not already paying the cost of health care for the uninsured, they're wrong. Their taxes and their private insurance premiums go up because of the cost of the uninsured. Right, but it also it's also, for the, in this country, an income problem because for low-income people, I, they can the hospital can sign them up for Medicaid. But if you're a middle class person or a lower middle class person, that's where where the real gap is. It's for people who are working 
and are not covered by insurance. And, and those people are at risk, not just for uh, not being covered for health insurance, but for losing everything they've acquired. Isn't that correct? That's absolutely correct. Everything you said is 100% correct. I will just add though that the Medicare people that are paying their Medicare premiums, which are you know subsidized, and the Medicare people, it's Medicaid, Medicare, the private insurance, Everybody is subsidizing the care for that middle class person you just said who has no health insurance. We're all paying extra because that person has no insurance. When they get sick, their costs are astronomical and they can't possibly afford it. Where do those costs fall? On the backs of the taxpayers and on the backs of the people paying private insurance premiums. Because what does a hospital do when it has to eat the cost of the uninsured? It ratchets up the cost it charges to the insured patient. We're all paying for each other already. We're just doing it in a ridiculously inept way because our system is not intelligently designed. If we were all paying into a central pot and that central pot had the ability to control prices, negotiate down pharmaceuticals, de-link healthcare from fee-for-service so doctors and hospitals weren't incentivized to do more things to people, all of our costs would go down, all of the care would become more efficient, care would be delivered when necessary, and not specifically to build a massive line item bill that floats the operating budgets of hospitals in a fee-for-service environment. So, I mean, there, there's also the phrase I've heard, which is practicing to insurance. So people sort of uh, make their practice, you know, the, the billing sort of coincide with things that will get paid for. So what happens when the patient presents themselves with something unusual where you don't know what it is? Under, under the system you propose, how, how does that person get taken care of where they probably need extensive testing to figure out what's wrong with them and maybe an exploratory surgery? What happens to that person? So things become very complicated. So <clears throat> a lot depends on the nature of the insurance that person has. And of course, remember, the insurance company is going to do everything it can just by its nature to try to limit its exposure there, its cost exposure. So if you're out of network, things are going to be denied. Well, you can't do that. You can't order that. You can't run that. You can't get that. Um, and then if you're in network, I, I have watched people in my hospital voluntarily relinquish their private insurance in order to sign up for Medicaid because their private insurance company kept denying stuff or kept saying, yeah, you filled out the form, but now you need to fill out another form. And they went months without chemotherapy. Wow. I, our system is not designed for efficient care. It's actually designed for inefficient care. The payers want inefficiency because it helps control their costs. Mm. So, but in the new system, would, how would that change? How would that change when someone presents themselves with something where it's not clear what's the matter with them? You have to maintain. You're correct. There would be attention the other direction, right? Because one of the foci of a uh, central system is going to be: look, we're responsible to the taxpayers. We can't have our costs explode. We have to negotiate down costs. And the hospitals that are overusing testing, they're going to be, you know, next year when we negotiate your budget, that's going to be factored in. So there's going to be pressure the other direction. Stop ordering so many tests, stop, to, stop doing so many surgeries. And the key is to find a balance. That's one of the reasons that I like the Australian and New Zealand model. Because mm -hmm. if the central system isn't performing well, if care isn't being delivered, the individual can say, well, I'm going to pay extra and go buy my own private plan, and I'm going to get my care that way, and the two systems compete. So, again, the specifics to any individual case are going to depend on that individual case. But overall, when you look at the incentives, to me, a system in which you have both a central single-payer system that covers everybody – Mm -hmm. And then the ability to pay extra to purchase your own private plan, if you so choose, that mm -hmm. balances that. And I, I like to tell people, okay, Democrats, you think you're right. Republicans, you think you're right. Let's do both models and let them compete head to head and see who wins. What could be more American than that? 
Exactly. Now let's talk a little bit about, about medications though, because, um, you know, care often involves medications, but, um, part of the affordable care act was a compromise on medication pricing and this, uh, in this inability that was sort of imposed to not negotiate prices. How do you see that changing under your, under your proposed plan? If you have a single payer system, or if you have a well-run <laughs> multi-payer system, although single payer systems throughout the world do this better. I mean, I, one of the objective facts that is discussed in the book is from a cost-to-efficacy standpoint, single-payer systems outperform multi-payer systems uh, throughout mm -hmm. the world. There is a central negotiating schema, and you are correct. We spend enormously more, um, multiple-fold more than any other country in the world on pharmaceuticals. And that is, that's a combination of overuse, but it's also very much driven by overpricing. Mm -hmm. um, if you've got a central mechanism to negotiate prices, those prices come down. And I think the other thing I point out to people is one of the reasons why Europe and Canada are able to spend such low prices on drugs is because the companies make all their money here. We're actually subsidizing drug pricing for the rest of the world because we're willing to pay more. If we said to the drug companies, your prices are going to have to come down in the U.S., sorry. We're just not going to purchase at that price. We're the government. We fund the insurance for everybody. You ain't got a choice. Then as their revenues in the United States fall, they will raise prices to the rest of the world, and you will see a more of an evening out. I think it's disturbing that we actively subsidize pharma pricing for the rest of the world, and that needs to stop. Hmm, interesting. So do you feel that the employer – purchase model for insurance also has to change in order for yes. your system to work? Yes, yes. You, you can have perfectly fine to have employers offer a, a competing private plan if they want to, mm. but linking um, it, healthcare access to employment is not a healthy way to deliver healthcare to a population. Mm -hmm. and, and we do it because of two laws passed in 1942, not because it's an intelligent way to deliver health care. You, you can't effectively deliver health care to a population of people if the only way to get health care is if your employer chooses to give it to you. So if you have people, how would people end up buying their own? Would it be taxes from their taken from their salary or how, you know, where, where would that money come from? How would. So, yeah. And again, it depends a little bit on whether we're talking a single payer, a private multi-payer or both single payer systems are funded via central taxes, whether that's payroll taxes, you know, sales taxes, gross receipt taxes, Governments can find the right balance of ways to raise taxes to pay mm -hmm. for that money. Now, here's a really important point, because people then say, oh, your taxes went up. That is not true. That is a hilarious talking point that people make when they want to mislead. You're paying a tax now. We don't call it a tax. We call it your benefits. Mm -hmm. You know what the average family coverage benefit is, according to a Kaiser Foundation survey of 2,000 employers in the United States from last year, the oh, average American family is paying $20,000 per year in health premiums. That is paid via a combination of employer contributions, which is about two-thirds, and employee contributions, which is about one-third. So money is being taken directly out of your salary, $20,000 per year. We don't call that a tax, but that's what it is. Mm. So what we're saying mm. is instead of that, you're going to pay, let's call it $14,000 to a central system that can negotiate prices down, create payment structures that align your interests in staying healthy with the healthcare provider's interests, and you will keep the $6,000 left. Some split between your employer and you that $6,000 will be returned to you. It is a shift in the direction of flow of funding. 
It is not only not an increase in the amount of money you're spending, it is a decrease. And that's been shown multiple times by multiple different expert groups that have evaluated how you would fund a single payer system. Mm-hmm. Wow. So, but, but then do you still have your deductibles and your co-pays or how does that work? That's a great question. And that varies dramatically by models across the world. The most successful models that are single payer or including the Australian New Zealand model where it's single payer and private multi-payer essentially eliminate deductibles, but they do tend to leave in co-pays and they leave in co-pays that are not outrageously expensive. I mean, they're, they're affordable co-pays for things that you want to sort of discourage overuse of. So you would say, I'm not going to have, for example, what, what I propose in the book based on the Australian New Zealand model. Mm-hmm. You would say, I'm not going to charge you a copay to see your primary care physician. I want you to see them so that you stay healthy. If you need referral to a cardiologist or a surgeon, you're going to pay a copay. I'm not going to charge you a copay for drugs on formulary. But if you want to use an expensive non formulary drug, you're going to pay a copay. So it is a way to build in to some degree a behavioral modification to try to discourage overuse of things that the system says, I'm not sure you really need that. If you want to choose to use it, you have to help pay for the cost of it. So how does that work? Like I'm for people that like I'm a, let's say I'm a diabetic, which I'm not, but let's say I am. I don't usually go to a primary care physician. If I'm a diabetic, I'm probably going to go to somebody who treats me for my diabetes as my primary care physician. Or if I have, um, you know, a heart condition, uh, high cholesterol or whatever, I might see my cardiologist as my primary care physician. You know, how, do, how does that work in a system like this? Yeah, that's a bad idea, right? I mean, that's, that's there. So I work in um, a public hospital system in L.A. County. We're the safety mm-hmm. net. And and my boss, Hal Yi, who is the chief medical officer of the Department of Health Services of L.A. County, really sort of brought to us an, a very innovative concept called e-consults. The purpose of an e-consult, and we've done this better than any other system in the United States, and he's published this. It's remarkably effective. You don't need to go to a cardiologist for your cholesterol, and you don't need to go to an endocrinologist for your diabetes. You go to your Mm -hmm. primary care doctor. They're internists. They know how to do that stuff. If they have a question, they fire an e-consult off to the expert. And the expert says, okay, adjust this, adjust that, send off this test. If you still need help, then I can see him. That system reduces unnecessary subspecialty visits by 50% and Mm -hmm. gives the appropriate information back to the primary care provider. That's innovation. Now, why would you do that in a fee-for-service environment? You would be disadvantaged to do that. You're going to make more money by referring to the cardiologist and the endocrinologist. Mm -hmm. That's the point. If you set up a system where the interest of the patient, the payer, and the provider are aligned, Mm -hmm. you get innovation that help increase efficiency and decrease costs. In a broken, multi-payer, disorganized fee-for-service model, you're incentivized to be inefficient. Mm-hmm. What about for catastrophic in- illnesses, like if, you ha- if you're a dialysis patient or if you have cancer? How, how does that, I mean, how does that play into this model? In a single-payer system, your health care costs are covered. Right, but you're, in terms of going, where do you, you know, like who becomes your, your doctor of choice? If you have you know, advanced renal disease, you know, how does that work? So one of the experts who helped Taiwan convert from a disorganized private multi-payer system into one of the most successful single-payer systems in the world, and this happened in the 90s. This is recent history. They sat down and they said, look, we're going to rationally design our healthcare system. They did for five years. It took them five years to convert from a very inefficient private multi-payer system with lots of uninsured Mm -hmm. to one of the most effective single-payer systems in the world. One of the people that helped them do that has authored articles in which she said she's a professor at Yale and she, or I'm sorry, Princeton. And she is, she has authored articles to say there is this 
terrible confusion in the United States. You want your choice of provider, and you're worried that if in a single-payer system, you won't get to choose your provider. You have it exactly backwards. In our system, your provider has to be in-network. Your insurance company delimits who you're allowed to see. If you see somebody out of that network, you're getting none of your costs covered. This leads to surprise medical bills and massive medical bankruptcies. Mm-hmm. In a single-payer system, your costs are covered. doesn't matter where you go. You're going to get referred to a specialist. Your costs are covered. Right. You truly can choose the doctor because everybody's getting paid from one payer. You're, there's no networks. There's no surprise billing. You know how many medical bankruptcies there are in the United States every year? That is people declaring bankruptcy due to health bills? More than wow. a half million. Wow. 500,000 Americans declare personal bankruptcy every year driven by health care costs. You know what that number is in Western Europe? Zero. Wow. So, so if that's true then, and, and, we, can, and we can fix it, what's, what's preventing it? You know, what is it, what's, what's standing in the way of, I mean, it seems like you've laid out a logical case. So what's, the, what's standing in the way of the logic? Who's fighting this? So several things. Great question. Several things. The first thing, and it actually may be the most powerful, is inertia. Uh, a couple years ago, and I tell the story in the book, I was part of the American Association for Advancement of Science, Leshner Public Engagement Fellowship. And as part of that, we went to Capitol Hill. And I tell the story in the book of going from office to office to talk to congressional staffers over health. And what I kept hearing was, why would we change our system? It's working for Americans. And Mm -hmm. I was like, it's working for Americans? What does that mean? (laughs) So I I thought and I thought and I thought, and I suddenly realized one day, the healthcare system, what they mean is people are using it. Why would we disrupt something that people are using? The healthcare system is working for Americans in the same way New Year's resolutions work for Americans. That is to say, we do them every year. We know they don't actually work. We know they don't deliver what we want them to deliver, but Mm -hmm. we just keep doing them out of habit. Mm -hmm. The first thing we have to get past is the inertia. We have to have people recognize we're getting ripped off. It's not okay to continue doing business as usual. Mm-hmm. That's the first barrier. Oh, well, we're using it. We have a system. I have healthcare through my company. What's that's fine, right? You're getting ripped off. Don't you want to not be ripped off? Right. The second right, thing right. is right. The You're second thing is You're paying 5 million dollars. It's like the glasses industry. It needs disruption. You're paying 5 million dollars for your glasses. You can buy a pair of glasses for $95. There you go. Exactly right. Just because we're doing it now doesn't mean we should be happy with it. It's not good. The second thing is politics. So, okay, let's say we get past the inertia and we all agree we need to change. How? I've had people who feel very passionately about single payer tell me that they're really upset with me for saying that I like this dual model. Why would you want a private multi-payer system? It's, you know, inequity and all this stuff. And I'm like, look, I hear you. I think single payer is better myself. But if half the population thinks single payer is better and half the population thinks private multi-payer is better and they won't meet in the middle, nothing will change. We have to find a way forward past hyper-partisanship where each party or each group or each constituent has a stake in the game. We have to blend those that they have to you know, set, you know, get past the divide between um, don't tread on me and united we stand. That's the second barrier. We need a path that's acceptable to a large enough body of constituents to make it workable. And the third barrier, you can imagine, all that waste we talked about, the trillion dollars per year in waste, somebody's making money off that. Right. They're not going to be real happy to see that money dry up. You can imagine there's going to be huge. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. So if people want to learn more about uh, your book or they want to buy your book, they want to learn more about you, what's the best way for them to do that? 
Broken, Bankrupt, and Dying is on sale on Amazon.com. Check it out. Um, I do have a website, but really I'm not the interesting part of this here. The interesting part of this is the American people are getting ripped off. And Mm -hmm. it's time for us to rise up and say enough's enough. Fix it. We're tired of being ripped off. And 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 part of that is is uh, figuring out what we a solution. And your book poses a solution that would be effective. And you know it's it's hard to be mad and not have something to do once you're mad, right? That's exactly right. The book builds the case, sort of like building a case in court, chapter by chapter. Each chapter starts with a real patient story, a true patient story, and those stories underscore the the principle in the chapter and it builds the case chapter by chapter our our healthcare system isn't working here's why it's not working here's how we got into this mess here are international models that show us pathways forward and here's the proposal that balances the don't tread on me and united we stand that could divide that could bridge the divide between the parties that could get us past hyperpartisanship and there are international models that show us that the proposal in the book not only can work, but is currently working in countries in the world right now. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. Brad Spellberg, and his website is B-R-A-D-S-P-E-L-L-B-E-R-G, and you can buy his book, Bankrupt, uh, Broken, Bankrupt, and Dying, through Amazon. It's a fascinating read, and for healthcare nerds like me, it's a must read. This is Minda Wilson for Urgent Care. Thank you.